0: Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrated his love to us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's a, a nutshell of the gospel that I'm not just a mistaker, but I'm a sinner, that I have a deep, deep issue in my heart of selfishness and pride, and Christ died for me to forgive me and to give me new life in Him. And uh, that's what we celebrate. That's what we celebrate every week here, that He loves me not because of my performance, but He loves me, and His performance is what gives me new life. His performance is what gives me forgiveness, not my own performance. So that's a great truth that we celebrate here every week. And, um, you know, this is the beginning of what we call Holy Week. This is maybe the most important week of the year when it comes to thinking about and meditating on our faith. And so I thought what we could do today is think about our faith, to think about where we are spiritually. If you're here today and you're a a newcomer, maybe you're not quite yet a follower of Jesus, maybe somebody invited you and you're here to just kind of check it out, I'm just grateful that you're here. You can just Stay in your seat and you can listen to it and take it all in. But for the rest of us, I would say most of us, those of you watching online in the room, would say, I am a disciple of Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus. And I think from time to time, maybe this is the best week to do this, where we would just pause and think about how we're doing in our faith. How are we doing in our faith? How are we doing in our discipleship? Or how are we doing when it comes to following our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? I love this quote from one author named Peter Sench, who writes this, an accurate, insightful view of current reality is as important as a clear vision. In other words, those of us who are disciples would say, my vision, my preferred destination is to be an unwavering disciple of Jesus, to be committed, to be a rock-solid believer, follower of Christ. That's important, but it's also important to be able to say, well, where am I today? Where am I today? And that's what we're going to talk about today. So it is Palm Sunday. This is the beginning of Holy Week. And this text that we're going to look at today is such an important text, such a hallmark in our faith that all four gospel writers tell us about it. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the authors of what's called the Synoptic Gospels because they kind of borrow from each other and add some things from each other and have their own version of the story. John gives us a, a unique view of it. Interestingly, when you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke spend about a third of their entire gospel talking about Jesus' final week. John spends about 50% of his gospel talking about Jesus' final week. So his final week has a lot of really important stuff about what it looks like to follow Jesus. And the very beginning of his final week is today, Palm Sunday. So we're going to walk through the text as we ask this question, how am I doing in my discipleship? How are you doing in your following of Jesus Christ? So here's Jesus. He's outside of the city of Jerusalem, about two miles to be exact. And uh, he had done some amazing things as he's making his way to Jerusalem for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. At one point, there's a blind man on the side of the road named Bar- Barnabas, and he hears that Jesus had walked by, and he says, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus doesn't rebuke him when he says son of David. Jesus is embracing this call that he's a Messiah. He goes over, he heals Bartimaeus, and Bartimaeus probably joins him on the journey. Lazarus, who had been healed, had been brought back from the dead mere days earlier, is probably in this crowd. Jesus' disciples, people who love him, people who are committed to them, as well as perhaps some onlookers. So here's how Luke records this. As he approached Bethpage in Bethany, again, this is about two miles outside of Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And they're like, okay, that's interesting. I'm assuming you have a relationship with this person, Jesus. He says, if anyone asks you, why are you untying it, tell them, the Lord needs it or the Master needs it. So they, because they're disciples, they're not just hearers of Jesus' words. They're doers of it. They want to practice what Jesus tells them to do. The text tells us that those who were sent ahead went and found it just as He had told them, and as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. Now, like as Americans living 2,000 years later, some of you are thinking, did Jesus just tell the disciples to commit grand larceny? What's going on here? Well, This is a moment where Jesus, again, is embracing his messiahship. He's embracing that he is the king. And in those days, if a king were to show up on the scene or a dignitary, at any point, he could go up to anybody and say, I want your personal property for my use. And there was nothing they could do about it. It's also possible that the disciples said to this cult owner, Jesus wants the cult. And again, everybody in the town Most people had heard of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, so they're like, okay, you can take the colt. They probably gave the colt back to the owner afterwards. So they do what Jesus tells them to do, and the text tells us that they brought it to Jesus. They threw their cloaks on the colt, and they put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. Now, again, to us, this is a little strange, like what's going on here? But if you're a Jewish person you're probably familiar with Jewish history and you know that 164 B.C., so this is about 190 years prior to this, Judas Maccabeus, who was kind of this warrior, had a band of warriors whom he surrounded himself with, and kicked the Greeks out of Palestine after they desecrated the temple. They rededicated the temple, and they came up with a holiday called Hanukkah, or the Feast of Dedication. When Judas Maccabeus rode into the city of Jerusalem, people had their palm branches waving, and they had their cloaks down on the ground to usher Judas Maccabeus in as, maybe he's our king maybe He's our Messiah, right? So there's a whole lot of excitement going on that Jesus, again, has orchestrated this. This isn't a scenario where the people are like, Jesus, we're going to go get you a donkey. We want you to sit on it, and we're all going to worship you. And Jesus is like, oh, shucks, you don't need to do that, right? He's orchestrating the entire thing and embracing the fact that He is the Son of David, the Messiah, the King of Israel. So We came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives. The whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. These are people who had witnessed Lazarus coming back from the dead. These are people who had had their eyes open. These are people who had been raised up because they were crippled. These are perhaps people who had been cured of their leprosy, many people who had heard the stories of Jesus, and they are pumped up. They are excited, and they're beginning to read the Psalms because during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Jews would gather some of the Psalms, and they would read them specifically uh, Psalm 118. So this is what they say, "'Blessed is the king,' "'Who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest.'" Because this is what these people were after, and this is what you're after as well, peace. Here's where they get this quote, Psalm 118. "'O Lord, save us,' which is the Hebrew word hosiah. It would later on be called hosanna. So everybody's waving palm branches saying, "'Save us, save us from the Romans.'" Grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine upon us. With boughs or with branches in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. So these people, again, are excited. They're pumped up because they're thinking, here's the Messiah, here's the king. And there's an interesting aspect of this story. Jesus is coming in on a donkey. There's a lot of symbolism there because many of the people who are familiar with Israelite history are thinking, okay, we have a prophet who spoke 500 years prior by the name of Zechariah who wrote about this. This is what Zechariah wrote. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So, here's Jesus on a donkey coming into Jerusalem. And on one hand, they understand that the prophecy is about him going on a donkey, but on the other hand, it seems a little silly that Jesus would come in on a donkey, on a a humble animal. I mean, they knew that, you know, Roman generals that would go into battle would go on a horse. If they went on a donkey, they would get slaughtered because a horse is a, a symbol of strength and might and power. Interestingly, I have a friend at the church who recently purchased a horse, and they named the horse Mission, which is like, yeah, you got this strong animal. I mean, they have Kentucky Derby, and they have the Belmont Stakes and the Preakness, and there's a bunch of people in this church who are on fire for horses. They don't have donkey races, right? They have horse races because it's a symbol of strength, and they're fast, and horses are great. Well, this guy, he ends up buying a horse. Its name is Mission. And then, because the horse needed some companionship, he bought a donkey. So now in the barn, he's got a horse and a donkey. Notice, he did not buy a donkey first and get the donkey some companionship by buying a horse. So the donkey is like the the symbol of humility. The horse's name is Mission, and the donkey's name is like like Millie. It's just just a humble little name, right? I was talking to him today, giving his permission, if I could tell this Story in my sermon. He goes, Yeah, you can tell it. And I also got to tell you that donkeys, when you look at their rear end, they actually have a cross in the back of their rear end. If that, you could read into that whatever you want. Uh, but here's this, this moment of humility, right? So all that to say is, all that to say is, I got a little distracted. All that to say is, the people who are on that original Palm Sunday are excited because they think he he might be the political messiah, but then there's the donkey, which is a symbol of peace. And again, people that ride donkeys into battle are going to get slaughtered, but it does fulfill Zechariah chapter 9. So just like you and even me, there's some excitement, but there's also a little bit of confusion. Some of you are like, okay, I don't really understand what's going on here. And if that's the case, you're in good company because as John describes for us, at first his disciples, they didn't understand all this either right? So they're, they're riding along, right? And people are excited, and they're waving their palm branches, and they're singing, and the crowd is getting bigger and bigger, and now we're introduced to the villains in the story, and the music changes. Dun, dun, dun. And Luke tells us that the Pharisees who were in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, shh, tell your disciples to keep it down. Now, why would they do that? Well, we don't know. It doesn't say in the text. i got a couple ideas. Number one, Jesus was a threat to them. They were jealous of Jesus. They did not like the fact that there was a parade in the city of Jerusalem. After all, as a Pharisee, I never got a parade, right? The second thing is they're thinking to themselves that the Romans see this massive procession with the crowds getting bigger and bigger. The Romans are going to take our authority, and they're going to take our temple. So, Jesus, tell them to pipe down. Meanwhile, the Romans are probably looking at this thinking... Oh, there's a crowd of people over there, and they seem really excited, but he's on a donkey. <laughs> so Jesus looks at the Pharisees when they tell him to tell his disciples to quiet down, and he says, Nope, I'm not going to tell them to be quiet, Mr. Pharisee. I tell you that if they keep quiet, even the stones will cry out. Now, other than Mick Jagger, have you ever heard a stone cry out? Right? Here's what Jesus is saying. Look, in this moment, I am, I am embracing my Messiahship. I'm orchestrating these events that even if the people calm down, even nature will cry out because they're going to recognize who is in this place right now. If you tell them to be quiet, even the stones, we got palm branches and we got stones that are going to cry out because the king is here. The king has come. So Jesus, again, he's on this donkey, he's moving into the city. The crowd gets bigger and bigger. And then something changes. And it's interesting the way Luke records this. And Again, the, the disciples, maybe they overhear this, maybe a couple of them overhear it, and they trade stories, and they write it down so that it's been preserved for you and I 2,000 years later. But the text tells us that as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it because he loved the city. Right? This was the the city of David, this was the city of God, and he knew that they would reject him. And he said, I, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. Because we're all looking for peace, but they missed it. But now, it's hidden from your eyes. And then Jesus gives this extraordinary prophecy. And this is one of the reasons I believe that the New Testament is accurate. It's one of the reasons I believe in the historicity of the New Testament because of this extraordinary prophecy that Jesus gives on the donkey in Jerusalem that day. He says, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. There will come a day, Jerusalem where your enemies, the Romans, are going to get a big old army and encircle you. They're not going to let anybody out of the city, and they're not going to let anybody inside the walls of Jerusalem, and people are going to die of starvation. These Romans eventually are going to punch a hole in the wall of Jerusalem. They're going to go in, and according to Jesus' prophecy, they will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on Another. This is devastating. 40 years after Jesus gives this prophecy in 70 AD, Titus, the Roman general, maybe he comes in on a white horse, he leads an army of thousands of Romans, they encircle the city of Jerusalem and they just wait. And then they punch a hole in the wall and they kill thousands and thousands of Jews and they take thousands of Jews and they sell them into the slave market. And then the Roman soldiers take that beautiful glistening temple that the Pharisees had so much pride in, and they took it and they scraped it off of the Temple Mount, and you can visit Jerusalem today, and you can see that there is not one stone left on another. And you ask that question, well, why did this happen? What's up with that? This was like the Holocaust before the Holocaust, And Jesus interprets it for us on the donkey in that day in Jerusalem. And he says, the reason this happened is because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. You missed it. In your pride, you were blinded. So, in my opinion, there's about five groups of people in Jerusalem that day. Five groups of people that were around Jesus as he's riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. First, first off, we have the enemies, the Pharisees, who want to get rid of Jesus. Perhaps Saul of Tarsus is there. We don't know, but maybe he was. Right? It wasn't much longer where Saul of Tarsus would sit at Stephen's feet as he's being stoned by the Sanhedrin. We have the people who just wanted to delete Jesus, truly His enemies. The other group of people that were there were the curious attenders. These were the residents of Jerusalem, right? These are the people who had heard the stories of Jesus. These are the people that were just kind of in the background, kind of taking it all in. They're not in. They're not disciples. They're not followers of Jesus. Maybe they're like waving a palm branch, but then if someone sees them waving a palm branch, they're like, oh, I'm just kind of checking it out. Just kind of curious. I'm not in. I'm just heard some stories. I see the excitement. I hear the singing. Then the third group is the fair weather disciples. These are the guys who are like, I'm in. I'm a follower of Jesus, but I'm in if he's the Messiah King. If he goes into Jerusalem and doesn't fulfill my expectations, my messianic expectations, I might be in a crowd that day shouting out, crucify him, crucify him. It's a fair-weather disciple. It's, yeah, I'm in, but if you don't do things according to the way I think you should do them, I'm out. Then there's the stumbling disciples. I put 10 disciples, Jesus had 12 disciples. Judas, I would say, would be an enemy of Jesus, betraying him. I'll talk about John in a minute, but think about this, 10 of his 12 disciples were stumbling. I mean, Jesus in Gethsemane gets arrested, and they all scatter. They're gone. I mean, at least Peter kind of stays behind. He's outside of the courtyard kind of looking in, hearing Jesus get questioned by Caiaphas and listening to the sounds, and and then he denies Jesus three times. Right after he said to Jesus, I'm with you wherever you go through thick and thin. I'm going to follow you. He's a stumbling disciple. And then the last group of people that remained true to Jesus, no matter the cost, through thick and thin, were these people, the unwavering disciples: Mary, Jesus' mother, she was at the cross, Mary's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, Mary Magdalene. If you want your daughter to follow Jesus, you should just name her Mary. I mean' it's just, there's so many Marys in the New Testament. And then I would say that John, because he remained at the cross, could be considered an unwavering disciple, though we don't know where he was during Jesus' arrest. But isn't it amazing that when you think about all of those crowds that were following Jesus, that were singing out to him, there's only five that remained unwavering through thick and thin. These people, the unwavering disciples, they are waving their palm branches with an unwavering faith. They're waving their palm branches saying, I'm going to worship you for who you are, not who I want you to be. I'm going to worship you because of what you've already done for me, not so that you can do something for me. That's an unwavering disciple. That's an unwavering disciple that says, I'm cool if you're the Messiah and a political ruler. That'd be great because I don't really like the Romans either. But I'll follow you wherever you go, even if it means I need to end up at the cross. So, Question I have for you is where are you in these five groups? Where are you in these five groups? The first group, the enemies, I would say there's probably nobody in this room who would be an enemy of Jesus. These are the people who are actively opposed. They're trying to delete Jesus from every conversation. These are the people who show up at the kitchen table, and they're just like, I don't want to talk about Jesus. They're actively trying to remove him. I am guessing that none of you online or in the room are enemies, so we'll move to the next group, which is a curious attender. We love curious attenders, people who show up, and they're like, I'm just going to kind of sit in the back. I mean, not literally in the back. I'm not calling you guys out in the back. But like, I'm just going to kind of see what's going on. Maybe I'll dip my toe in. I'm a little bit curious. I've heard Jesus is great. Read a little bit of Scripture. But I'm not in. I'm not a disciple yet. I'm just seeing if I want to be in. You know, if you're here and you're a curious disciple, in many ways we think about how can we present this great truth to you all the time. It's one of the reasons every time I get up to preach, I think to myself, I want to explain this story as if you don't know anything about it because some of you are curious. Right? It's like Brandon who shared his story at the beginning of the service said, I, I really haven't read the Bible much. I'm brand new to church. He's, he's curious. He, he actually has taken another step towards Jesus. So you know, some of you, maybe you're curious about the fair-weather disciples. You're hearers of the Word, but you're not doers. You're like, I like Jesus. I like praying. I like reading the Word, but I'm not really interested in doing it. I mean, when the going gets tough, I'm out, right? These are are the folks who when you experience suffering in your lives, you hit the eject button too early because it's too difficult. These are the people that when you're in a conversation with somebody and Jesus comes up, you're just kind of like, I don't want to go there. It's too risky, Right. How about the stumbling disciples? These are the people, you sincerely love Jesus. I mean, you really do love Jesus. And you've made a decision to follow him. And you sincerely want to follow him, but, but you stumble. Right? It's a struggle. It's like Peter, who wants to follow him and kept on stumbling. But unlike Judas, Peter got back up. And allow Jesus to reinstate them. And then the last group is the unwavering disciples. And I I know for many of us, we would say, that's where I want to be. I want to be an unwavering disciple. I want to follow Jesus wherever he goes, even if it means suffering. Even if it means the cross. Now, I think I can say this with confidence, that in our church, I think that we're blessed to have all four groups of people. The curious kind of checking it out, the fair weather, the stumbling. And we got some unwavering people, some of the heroes of the faith. Here's the interesting thing. The unwavering have the most amount of patience for these other three groups. Because the unwavering are so close to Jesus that they recognize how far they fall short and they don't walk around trying to pull the speck out of everybody else's eye. When you talk about these people, it's like, man, they just love Jesus. They just have a real faith. They're willing to mentor people and bring them around them. They're willing to encourage them. And when they experience suffering, they don't hit the eject button too soon. The unwavering. Ephesians chapter 4 says this, be completely humble, gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. We're called as the church to look at the people in our lives no matter where they are and to be patient and to be long-suffering towards them because that's what Jesus did for you and that's what Jesus did for me. I mean, think about this. I love the disciples because there's they're so much... I feel feel like I can relate to Peter, you know, who just stumbles and Jesus dies on a cross and he raises from the dead three days later. And then 40 days later, after Jesus had spent time teaching them, he's gathered with them in Jerusalem, right? And he's about to ascend up into heaven. And if you're Jesus, you're thinking to to yourself, I hope these guys get it because I'm leaving. I hope they understand it. I spent three years... You know, mentoring them, discipling them. And right before he's about to ascend up into heaven, the disciples say to him, hey, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Are you going to like go back into Jerusalem, maybe this time on a horse, and get rid of those Romans? And Jesus is probably like, oh. But he loves them. He's long-suffering towards them. And so he ascends up into heaven and he gives them the Holy Spirit and everything changes. And stumbling Peter became the rock. I mean, not Dwayne Johnson, the rock, but he came, the leader of the church, the rock that led the church, this, this stumbling man. And you read the New Testament, he keeps on stumbling, but he keeps on getting back up and he became an unwavering disciple. At one point, Peter would sit down and he'd pull out a pen and some paper and he'd write a letter to the church. And I love this letter. Peter said this, he, meaning Jesus, committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Peter would say, I spent three years with this man, Jesus. I spent evenings around the campfire where we were telling jokes and silly stories and telling stories about our history. I saw Jesus look people right in the eyes and have good conflict with them. I saw Jesus encourage people. I saw Jesus heal people. I'm telling you, I spent hours and hours and days and days and years with Jesus. He didn't sin one time. He was perfect. And even though I kept on stumbling... He didn't give up on me. Jesus, when they they hurled insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Peter would say, I was outside of the courtyard that day, and I could hear the punches land on Jesus' face. I could hear the stick hit Jesus in the head. I could hear the insults of the crowd. And Jesus never once punched back. Jesus was like a lamb led to the slaughter who didn't even open his mouth. And yet I still denied Him. And yet He forgave me. Instead, Jesus entrusted Himself to Him who judges justly. Think about this. <laughs> the perfect Son of God on the cross as He's about to die looks on at the people who crucified Him and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Long-suffering. Peter would say, he had long suffering towards me, he has long suffering towards you. He himself bore our sins, all of your sins. All of the sins that you've committed were absorbed in the body of Christ on that cross and when he breathed his last and said it is finished. It means it's finished. Your sin is forgiven. He bore our sins in his body on the tree so that so that we might die sins and live for righteousness by his wounds you've been healed by his wounds you've been given peace and then he would say for for you were like sheep going astray I was like sheep I was like one of the hundred who decided to leave the fold and Jesus left the 99 and came after me for we were like sheep going astray But now, you've returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your soul. So wherever you are, if you're a curious attender, if you're a fair-weathered disciple, if you're a stumbling disciple, I got one question for you, and it's this. Take this question seriously. Would you consider being an unwavering disciple? It's a decision. You don't just fall into being unwavering. You make a decision to be an unwavering disciple. Do you want to do it? Seriously, do you want to do it? One day, Jesus is uh, praying all by himself. The disciples, they eventually find him praying. And Jesus looks up at them. And he says, who do the crowds say I am? I mean, you guys have been walking with me for a while. right? You've heard me teach to the masses, what are people saying about me? What's the rumor on the street? And they say, you know, my paraphrase, they say, well, Jesus, people are impressed by you, but they're also a little bit confused. Some people think you're Elijah who's come back from the dead. Some people think you're John the Baptist, even though he lost his head. Maybe you're like a reincarnated John the Baptist. Some people think you're one of those prophets from long ago who has come back. There's all kind of, we're not exactly sure, Jesus, but there's a lot of talk out there. And then Jesus, man, he asked this question that is so poignant, right? It's like he looks at at, at Peter right in the eye, or John right in the eye, or Thaddeus right in the eye, maybe even Judas right in the eye. He says, okay, that's fine. The crowds are going to talk. There's going to be rumors. But who do you say? Do you say I am? Because that's what I'm really interested. The crowds are going to talk, but I want to know what you think about me. And Peter pipes up and he says this, you're the Christ of God. You're the Messiah. And perhaps Jesus is thinking to himself, okay, you don't really understand what you just said. What you're thinking, Peter, is that I'm going to be this king who's going to come and set up an earthly kingdom and kick out the Romans. And so what Jesus says next is, I just want you guys to know, I'm going to be crystal clear right now, we're going into Jerusalem, I will be betrayed, I will be handed over to the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and they will kill me, and three days later I will rise. That's the kind of Messiah that I'm about. And then he said to them all in that moment, he said, if you want to follow me, you want to come after me, you got to deny yourself. It's not going to be about you. You got to take up your cross daily and follow me even into places of suffering. Jesus would say, if you want to follow me, broad is the road that leads to destruction and narrow is the road that leads to life. So I ask you again, would you consider being an unwavering disciple? Whatever he asks you to do, will you be willing to do it even if it leads to the cross? Even if it leads to being around the table with somebody and saying, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to invite them. I'm going to talk to them. I'm going to talk about Jesus, even if it leads to death. So do you want to be an unwavering disciple? Do you want to take another step closer to Jesus? There's about 50 things we could talk about. Let me just mention three very practical ways. Number one, will you worship him? And worship is in part music, but worship's a lifestyle, right? Driving down your car, will you take some time to just tell him how great he is? I'm worshiping you for who you are, not necessarily what you're going to do for me. I'm worshiping you because what you've already done for me, not because I need something from you. I'm going to worship you. I'm going to sing out to you. I'm going to praise your name. I'm going to talk about you. I'm going to worship you with my life. That's what unwavering disciples do. And then number two, would you be long-suffering? Would you be long-suffering with the children in your life, the relatives in your life, and you're just like, ah, I just want to give up on them? Or the suffering in your life where it's so tempted to just hit the eject button? Would you be patient? Would you bear with one another in love? Would you be long suffering? That's what unwavering disciples do. And then lastly, would you be bold? Would you talk about Jesus when the time is appropriate, even when you're a little bit nervous? Inviting somebody to something, bringing up the name of Jesus in a, in a discussion, even if it means you might experience some rejection. Would you consider being an unwavering disciple? It's your decision. It's not something you fall into. It's a decision that you make. Will you be like those women, those four women and that one man who waved their palm branches and worshiped him no matter where it took them? Would you remain with Jesus no matter how difficult it gets through thick and thin? Would you serve him and worship Him, and love Him, and stand strong in the name of Jesus? Will you do that? I'm going to give you just a minute or so to be silent before the Lord and uh, to consider where am I on this journey? And what's it look like for me to take another step towards Jesus? What's it look like for me to be an unwavering disciple? I want to give you a minute to just be still, to be silent, To imagine yourself in the crowd on Palm Sunday. To confess your sin. And to ask God to give you the strength to be unwavering. So take a moment to be silent before the Lord. Our worship team is going to come up right now. And then they're going to lead us in a couple of songs that express our worship around this whole theme of the triumphal entry. So take a moment to be still before your Savior.